0: Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Humanly. And today I'm joined by Professor Tim Noakes. And it's such an honor to be speaking with Professor Noakes. He's been an inspiration to me with the work that I've been doing over the years. And it's a real honor. Or oh, I feel very honoured to have uh, Professor take time out of his busy busy schedule to come and speak with me. Professor Noakes studied at the University of Cape Town, and you obtained your Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery, and your MD, and a Doctor of Science in Medicine in Exercise Science. There, uh, you are now the Adjunct Professor at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology. Uh, You've published more than 750 scientific books and articles, and you've been cited more than 21,000 times in the scientific literature. And you've been an author of many books and you've done some fantastic work in the field of exercise science and sports nutrition, and just nutrition in general. Uh, author of the best-selling book, The Real Meal Revolution. You're the founder of the the, the Noakes Foundation. And you're the co-founder and chief medical director of the Nutrition Network. So there's a lot that you're doing. Wow. It's such an impressive. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> I've been around a long time. You it's have? A, it's <laughs> it. You, yeah. you have. Um, I, I first found out about your work going back many years when you were a big advocate for uh, high fat, low carb and your views on that attracted or garnered a lot of attention, either unwanted or wanted. (laughs) And you had some, you had some issues with those views. People didn't really want to accept what you were saying into, in the relation to uh, carbohydrate and and fat intake, because your view was a little bit counter-narrative.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was counter-narrative, because that was the narrative I'd been telling for 33 years. Mm. And so then on my, what I call my Damascene moment, I came across the book, The New Atkins for the New You, and I read it. And then within two hours, I realized that I'd been promoting the wrong diet. And so, of course, I switched. And I had such success on the diet that I couldn't keep it quiet. I also lost a lot of weight. And people said, have you got cancer? And so I said, no, just following the Atkins diet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so then I couldn't hide it any longer. And that then caused huge problems for my profession. And ultimately my faculty at the University of Cape Town, uh, kicked, well, essentially they kicked me out. They they didn't want me there anymore. They, they claimed that I was spreading misinf- dietary misinformation that would kill people. And then ultimately I was charged by the Health Professions Council for a seven word tweet. And that my whole career now hung on me proving that what I said in that tweet was in those seven words was acceptable and so i had no choice but to go to court against the health professions council and we went we were in court for 28 days spread over 4 years and ultimately we won convincingly we won 13 decisions to 0 wow. for them and and then i realized you know what i i learned obviously a lot because the the chief prosecution's witness had written the south african dietary guidelines for childhood feeding and that was where my problem was I was said to be promoting misinformation. And the, the guidelines that she'd written were exactly what I said, were precisely what I said. And they couldn't see it. And then they they took me to court for that. But it was, of course, the problem was that I was anti-grains, and you can't you can't be anti-grains in the world today. So that was what happened. But when I won, the health professions council didn't acknowledge that I'd won. They didn't say I was correct. The, the South African Dietetics Association didn't acknowledge that what I said was correct. and they, they were driving the charge. And my university never apologized. So I was kind of thrown to the wolves. But that, that's fine. I think the point I was about to make was that I realized that science is not material. They, they don't really care about science. Hmm. It's what's politically correct. That's acceptable. And my problem was I threatened the funding of the funding sources of the University of Cape Town. And that's where the that's what they were revolting against. I was questioning the medical model of how you manage disease and and you can't do that.
0: So why do you think there was so much resistance against you with your holding the view that carbohydrates may in fact, or I'm not even sure exactly um, how they responded to your claims. Uh, but why is there so much resistance against your? Perspective that high fat can in fact be healthy and lower carbs can be a sustainable part of a healthy diet. Uh, and obviously, that does go against a lot of the government recommendations yeah. around grain and, and carbohydrate consumption. Because
1: industry has invested so much money in capturing the medical schools that that's the reality. Right. So, the medical schools across the globe, it's not just the University of Cape Town, it's across the globe, are captured by the pharmaceutical industry and big food. And so medical students are only taught one thing. They taught that a high-fat diet causes heart disease and diabetes and all these conditions, when it's, of course, patently obvious that that's not correct. It's the opposite. But if we were to start treating people with a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, we would obliterate diabetes, certain cancers, maybe Alzheimer's disease, etc., hypertension, obesity, And they can't afford that because the pharmaceutical industry functions by having clients or patients and a cured patient is a lost client and they can't have that. So that's the problem. So here I was specifically charged for saying that for making ridiculous claims about disease prevention and disease reversal. Well, I mean, I'd reverse my type two diabetes and when I when when I re- we wrote this book and it was published, people wrote to me and they said I reversed my diabetes or I I lost a hundred kilograms of weight. Now I'd never seen anything like that, so obviously I, we reported it in the scientific literature. And then it, but that was a massive challenge. That so people I've also learned that people are are, are, are taught to second their knowledge to other people. So they got the experts and the experts say high fat diets kill you. So that's fine. Okay. The experts said it, therefore it has to be true. And my, the person then says her, his or her total character is, is dependent on defending that position. Mm. Because if they said it's wrong, then they'd have to say, well, those experts are wrong and they'd have to change the whole view of life. And they're not prepared to do that. And unfortunately, that's what we teach medical students as well. You know, you just toe the line and believe Mm -hmm. the experts and don't question. And Mm -hmm. I think that that raises another thing I've realized recently. You know, science is not a body of knowledge. People say, oh, like Fauci says, you know, I am the science. That's nonsense. Science is a method. That's all it is. It doesn't say, you know, this is the truth. It said this is that hasn't yet been disproven. And so people have to understand that 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 when that science is about questioning and testing and evaluating hypotheses, and if you don't evaluate the hypothesis, if you don't test your beliefs, it's not science anymore. It becomes dogma and religion, and and people really need to understand that. So people like myself get into trouble because we ask questions. We we sign. We're real scientists. We ask questions, and you're no longer allowed to do that if it conflicts with other opinions and. Forces that are driving knowledge to support a particular financial model.
0: Yeah, I've also noticed that, and I'm glad you bring it up. Certainly, over the last couple of years, there's been that mantra follow the science. And when you show people yeah. the actual science, they go, Oh, no, 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 not that science. <laughs> this science, <laughs> we're talking about this science. Yeah, um, and yeah I've certainly uh, run into some issues with some perspectives and things that I've shared over the years, uh, which. Is based in actual real science where the method has been adhered to and there's been an outcome or a result and you show that and because it doesn't follow the narrative and it is counter narrative you you lose favor um with people not only in the health profession but the educational profession and things as well
1: yeah yeah exactly
0: so when you're talking about carbohydrates and, and carbohydrate intake um, Are you referring more so for the intake, like of all or any carbohydrates, or is it mainly the processed and refined carbohydrates that you have concerns with?
1: Yeah, I think you, you make a very good point that when I wrote the Real Meal Revolution with those three co-authors, we spoke about eating real foods, and then we focused on cutting the carbs because, and we, we weren't focusing on ultra processed foods, but since then, that's now 12 years ago or so we've realized that it's ultra-processed foods that that are the beginning problem. So that you're quite right. We need to focus on eating food that comes directly from the farm and doesn't go through massive factories and processing. So yes, ultra-processed foods are the real problem because they're full of sugar and they're highly addictive and they make you hungry. And so you're always eating, always snacking, and then you've, you've, you've basically got a sugar addiction. And to the treat that you have to treat the sugar addiction to treat the sugar addiction, you have to get rid of the ultra processed foods. So yes, that that's correct. However, going even beyond that, where am I now, for example, and I represent many people who have damaged their bodies because of eating too much ultra processed foods and too much carbohydrate. And we get to a phase where actually even eating reasonable foods, like you might say fruits and and certain vegetables which are low in carbohydrate, that isn't we still can't accommodate that because we're so carbohydrate resistant, carbohydrate intolerant, and then we have to go to very low carbohydrate diets. Right. So that's the the distinction. And it's very clear to me that if you have type two diabetes, as I have, but mine's reversed, you cannot afford to eat more than 10 to 15 grams of carbohydrate a day. That's that's your maximum because it upsets your your glucose metabolism to such an extent that you're just damaging your body. So the only way to correct that is to just cut the carbs. You've already cut the ultra-processed foods, but now you must cut the carbs to even lower levels. So I I completely understand if people didn't eat ultra-processed food, but they ate a reasonable carbohydrate intake, and there are populations, and there are populations on islands near Australia, where people live very well, have traditionally eaten high-carbohydrate diets and do fine but they've never seen sugar and they've never seen vegetable oils and they haven't seen ultra processed foods, but the instant, instant those ultra processed foods come in and the sugar, then they get all the problems that we have uh, with the diabetes, the beast, the hypertension and so on. So, so yes, uh, you're quite right. However, I'm not sure. I still think that the majority of the world's populations are probably partially carbohydrate intolerant and and they can't will cope with the high carbohydrate intake for very long. Again, I'm, we're making the distinction between carbohydrates and ultra processed foods.
0: And how does this work? Is this because carbohydrates are directly damaging to the body themselves? Or is this more so that the carbohydrate foods are lacking in certain nutrients? And when we consume those, our body somehow develops a deficiency and then we have altered carbohydrate metabolism. What's going on there?
1: So, I couldn't have answered that question until about three months ago. And I think I really do have the answer. (laughs) Right. So, Dr. Cahill was the first person ready to study starvation and fasting and wrote a very famous paper, presented a paper, the Banting Lecture 1971. That's the Banting, the guy discovered insulin, not the Banting diet. Banting. So, so he gave the Banting 1971 Banting Diet Lecture. And sorry, the, not the Banting Diet, the Banting Memorial Lecture, which you can download on the internet. So anyone can check this. And there he said, and again, I'd read this 20 or 30 years ago, but it completely went over my head because I didn't, at that time, I didn't understand it. You know, you need different eyes. You have to see things differently. He said, the first rule in metabolism, the fir- the whole focus, the first focus of the body is to regulate the blood glucose concentration in a tight homeostatic range. And there's only five grams of glucose in the bloodstream. So the, And if it goes to too much, you have diabetes. If it goes too low, you damage your brain. So it's kind of important to keep it within that range. So we secrete insulin immediately. The glu- We take a high-carbohydrate meal or even look at carbohydrates. The insulin rises just to get the glucose down again. And what we've now, and so that would have been fine when we were eating high fat, high protein diets for the last 4 million years. But then along comes agriculture 18,000 years ago, and now in the last 20 or 30 years, we get these ultra processed foods. And what do they do? They challenge that set point every three or four hours. Every three or four hours, you shoot your glucose up, you have to hypersecrete insulin. And we know. That if you continually overstimulate the system, the body will eventually become resistant to that hormone. So then you start to develop insulin resistance. And that is why we're in the state we're in today, because the body is not designed for this continual insult of carbohydrates. And what I've learned from work we did in the 1990s, and again, it's when you come back with different eyes where we put people on high-carbohydrate, low-carbohydrate diets, we infuse them with insulin, we infuse them with glucose, it's very clear that once your insulin goes above a tiny fasting level, you shut off, your whole metabolism changes, you shut off fat metabolism, and you burn carbohydrates. So, so I've concluded, and I'll, I'll, I'll follow this up a little bit later with some other information. I've concluded that the reason humans burn carbohydrates is not to maximize your athletic performance. Nonsense, I'll, I'll show that why. It's because you want to regulate your blood glucose concentration. So the, the instant your blood glucose rises, the body says, we've got a crisis. We've got to get rid of this carbohydrate and we must burn it. That's the first point. So, so the only reason humans burn carbohydrates, other than that which is needed by the brain, is to get rid of it so that you the next insult comes, more carbohydrates, your body's ready to burn that as well. So that's the first thing. And then I realized that the reason we have glycogen or carbohydrates stored in the muscles is it's a sump. So as soon as your glucose shoots up, the body says, get rid of this glucose out of the bloodstream. I do not want to see it there. You hypersecrete insulin and the glucose disappears into your muscles. Right. Now what happens next is now you go and run. And the body says, Thank goodness, we can get rid of all this carbohydrate that's sitting in the muscles. And so you immediately burn the, the carbohydrates. And then what do we assign to say, like I did in Law of Running? Carbohydrates are obligatory for performance. They aren't. <laughs> They're obligatory to get to regulate your blood glucose concentration. That's why
0: you burn them. So are you saying this is kind of like a protection mechanism by the body? Exactly, precisely. Oh, that's oh. what it's there for. That's what it's there for,
1: because we don't need carbohydrates except for, for for your brain. You can do everything else. And I know you're going to say, but Dr. Noakes, we know that you have to burn carbohydrates when you're running fast. Well, unfortunately, we have a paper coming out quite soon showing okay. that that is nonsense. Right, That you can, you can do high-intensity exercise burning fat alone. And that changes the whole equations of everything. And and we certainly had studied an elite. So I don't want to talk too much about the unpublished work because it's so revolutionary mm. that I, I, I wanted to make its impact when it comes out. But some time ago, probably two years ago, we we and we published this work. We took an athlete who was fat adapted, and he said, "You know, should I be taking glucose when I'm doing my hundred k time trials?" And we th- put him through time trials. We He did a 20K time trial, and he found glucose did help a bit. When he did a 100K time trial, it didn't work. He actually went a bit slower. Mm. But the point was, from the moment he began exercise, he was burning fat at 1.5 grams per minute, and he was covering almost all his energy requirements coming from fat. And this guy was cycling hard. He was cycling as hard as he could over 100Ks. So that changes everything. Because what we are taught today, or what and what I wrote in Law of Running, so I'm equally guilty, was that when you start exercise, you, you burn mainly carbs, and then you, that's great. So now you can go three hours, and then you've depleted your muscle glycogen. That's fine. And not many people exercise for longer than three hours in competition. You know, you're going to the Ironman and so on. And so there's never been, no one's asked the question, so what happens at four hours? If you're burning all this carbohydrate, it's the main fuel source, and then you run out. What do you do? Well, you have to burn fat. But what happens if you haven't adapted your body to burning fat? Then you can't burn fat. You have to slow down. And But if you start burning fat at 1.5 or 2 grams per minute, you can go for hours on your carbohydrate stores. You don't, you're not going to hit the wall after three hours mm. because you've run out of muscle glycogen. You 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 did you started with little glycogen and it doesn't matter because you're burning fat at such a high rate. So that's going to change it. And I'm, one of the tables in the new law of running will be that it'll say, okay, if you want to run a marathon in two hours thirty, this is how much fat you got you need to burn from the start.
0: Right.
1: And my gosh, look, you can go the whole way on little glycogen, so you don't need a carbohydrate load. Why would you want a carbohydrate load? Mm. But
0: when people see those figures, they might start seeing things a bit differently. <laughs> and because that is something um, that you've said for a while, is that a high fat, low carb diet, particularly for long distance or endurance athletes is certainly beneficial. But um, I think that maybe there wasn't enough good solid evidence to show that that was also the case for high intensity exercise. Yeah. So it's really interesting that you were going to, published something in relation to that has there been any other evidence published in regards to that similar topic or is this the first work that's going to be published
1: well if you look in that there are odd studies there are odd studies and and, you know louise burke is she sits on the other side of the fence and of course she's from canberra and the australian institute of sport and she sits on the other side but she put athletes through a three-week training program olympic class athletes and after three weeks they were burning fat at very high rates even when they were racing over 21 or 25 kilometers so but that got kind of hidden because they also performed slightly worse which which doesn't mean anything because it wasn't a randomized controlled trial we have to take note of it but it wasn't a definitive trial so yes they performed a little worse but I've argued that they performed a little worse because their blood glucose concentrations in one experiment were falling because they weren't given glucose during the exercise, but the other group was, the control group was. So there was a slight difference. But I mean, that, that's not the point of the argument. The point was they were burning fat at a high, very high rate. And by the end of the the 25Ks, they were burning half a gram of carbohydrate a minute, which is absolutely nothing. Mm. And they that's and that happened within three weeks. So within three weeks, these athletes were burning fat at very high rates, and yet they were in, in competitive mode. But they did go a bit slower. So then everyone ignores that fact that they were burning fat at high rates. So so our work started when we did five k time trials, and we we're reasonably good athletes. They were running in twenty minutes. They're not the world's best, but they were better than eighty eight percent of all Americans. And we did 5K time trials in the laboratory. So it was standardized, high carb, high fat diets, zero difference in performance, absolutely no difference. Wow. And then we noticed, well, you know, I said, but has anyone ever published a, a figure showing as you increase your exercise intensity, what happens to fat metabolism and carbohydrate metabolism? If you're fat adapted or if you're carbohydrate adapted? And fortunately, we had this, it was a randomized control trial So we had athletes when they were carb-adapted, and when they were fat-adapted, they were exactly the same athletes. And we showed that when they were fat-adapted, they burned fat at high rates, even at 85% VO2 max. Now, the textbook says at 85% VO2 max, you're not burning any fat at all. And these athletes at 85% were still burning a considerable amount of fat, much more than anyone would have predicted. And we've since gone further and we've studied athletes exercising 85% of VO2max under different conditions. And we've confirmed that they burn a lot of fat. And I won't even tell you how much, but a lot of fat. And so that throws the thing out the water because the textbook says at 85%, you've got zero fat oxidation. And we've shown that 85% of VO2max, you have plenty of fat oxidation. There are other people who have shown it in, in different ways, but for that, once you start getting people to do intervals, then you notice on the fourth or the fifth or the sixth interval, they suddenly start to burn rather a lot of fat, and that's because they're becoming muscle and liver glycogen depleted. Insulin is dropping, and then you turn into fat. So, so the, the reason why we underestimate how much fat the body can burn is because we're always studying people who are hyper-insulinated. Mm-hmm. they've always got insulin above the fasting level so if your insulin is above six micro units per ml which is a fasting level i mean that's the lab, level we want to see people with and we only see very few people and generally as people eating high fat diets have ins- fasting insulin of six or lower if it's above six you you will stop burning fat you I mean you burn carbs immediately and six is is tiny i mean if you you look at the the values that in medicine, we say, what's a safe value for for fasting? It's oh, 20 units. No, no. <laughs> 20 units, you're already, you're finished, you're already in the wilderness, right? as far as your health is concerned.
0: You mentioned earlier, I, I appreciate you taking the time to explain that to me. And it sounds really interesting. Um, when is that research coming out? Can you share?
1: Well, like, we, we actually finished the pub. We have worked on the writing up for about the last two months. Okay. We were ready to submit it about a week ago, and for some reason it's just been up slightly upheld. So so we'll be submitting it literally within a week's time or or at maximum two weeks' time. Then of course it has to go to the reviewers. And because this is this is gonna blow things out of the water, yeah, we don't think we're gonna fair review. <laughs>
0: oh,
1: because, really? Yeah, because we're going to a journal which pushes the high carb diets wow. and says, that you know, high carbs. Are... But I mean, so eventually we will find the public, a, a, a journal that will publish it, but you start at the top. And the old idea that the top journals were independent of industry is nonsensical. That doesn't exist. I mean, the over the COVID story, the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet have completely destroyed their credibility hmm. by publishing stuff that was nonsense. Hmm. And, you know, physiology journals, why should they be any different? Unfortunately, they, they are. So we'll just have to see.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting you, you, to see. I think,
1: I think you, you know that the editor is the key person because the editor decides whether the article will be published. He simply sends it to people whom he knows will either give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. So if he doesn't want the article published, he sends it to his mates, who will give it a thumbs down. And so then it gets lost. But if he if he likes the article, he'll send it to his mates who will give it a thumbs up and then it will be published. How so we si- just don't
0: know. How scientific, <laughs> hey? No bias. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, <laughs> exactly <like>. It's nonsense. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned earlier that you once had type 2 diabetes. How did yeah. you actually get diabetes? Was this a diet or a oh. lifestyle thing? And how did you reverse it? Like, what did your diet look like before you had diabetes? And what did it look like When you treated diabetes
1: okay so i was brought up in zimbabwe by my mother and father obviously but my mother her father had been a sorry no had been a meat seller in in liverpool we we were from originally from liverpool so meat we were basically raised on meat my mother fed me all the Fantastic carnivorous diet. We used offal for breakfast, eggs and bacon plus offal. That's what we ate. Brains and kidneys and livers. And it was amazing. So I'm doing all of that. And I'm still doing that when I first start running. Although I am saying high carbs, it's just not quite come in. This is 73, 74. The high carb diet really takes off after 77. And I, so 73, 74, I've been rowing and now I start running and I'm eating largely a carnivorous diet and I have my best runs ever. And the longer the distance, the better I run. Then of course, I'm at medical school and I go into science and I happen to land up in cardiology and there it is 1976, 1977. If you're eating fat, you're going to kill your arteries. You're going to die. So of course I change. And start eating high carbs, low fat, lots of vegetable oil, lots of margarine, and still lots of sugar because I was a sugar addict. And now I'm pumping in the sugar because sugar makes you go faster. Mm. And so I do this. I start to put on weight. I find it very difficult. The only way I can control my weight is to run 100 miles a week. That's it. 160Ks, I can't control my weight under that. So I overrun. I run far too much right and but even then so but the moment i stopped like i'd run a race the moment i stopped training the weight will come on within days Hmm. and i couldn't understand this and so then how do you get over it you go back and you train and you do exactly the same you go and run 120 130 140 k's a week to get your weight down once i got over 120 k's a week then i then my weight would start coming down but anything less than that made no difference and so, but I'm pushing the carbs all the time. And my dad dies of diabetes during this period. And I see him decline. Right. And uncle and an aunt also develop diabetes. So I've got the strong genes. Also in 19, 1978, I'm involved in an experiment. We study post-exercise ketosis. Would you believe it? It's yeah, we are. Wow. Of ketosis. And we published a paper in Journal of Physiology and I'm one of the subjects. And we, we ran a two hours on a high carb diet or, a, or when we'd been low carb diet and no carbs leading up to it. So I got this massive ketosis, but my insulin levels were off the scale. Remember we talked about six. On the high carbohydrate diet, my instant fasting insulin went up to 30, it was five times normal. Wow um that's right a- and Fasting. only on a low carb diet that it come down but even then it was 10 or 15 a contra call, which is still way too high yeah and then when i exercised my glucose shot up which it should never happen why would your glucose rise when you're exercising and the answer is because that's all signs of pre-diabetes and insulin resistance so this happened to me when i was 28 years old i was running marathons i was training 130 140ks a week regularly and running marathons and here i was profoundly insulin resistant and i coped with that for a few years but eventually it caught up and eventually my running i slowed right down and it was really sad because had i been eating a high fat diet my, my running would not have deteriorated as rapidly as it did it took 10 years and then it was kind of over whereas i know if i'd been on a high fat diet i could have continued running well for another 10 or 15 years mm. yeah so so i was becoming more and more insulin resistant and and getting all the symptoms but not recognizing what they were i had achilles tendonitis, which is a classic sign of insulin resistance i was always putting on weight and and when we ate carbs before the races you'd bloat and you'd think well, this is good for you but you know what was really interesting was that what I really loved about that period was we'd go and run 40 miles on the weekend. And those are the things that I really love because suddenly after 20 or 30 miles, I'd run out of glycogen and I'd start burning ketones or and burning fat. And I would just get this high <laughs> because now my body was working the way it wanted to work. It wasn't saturated with carbohydrates, with high insulin. Get the insulin down, start burning ketones and feel fantastic. And it's only when I finally, finally, in 2011, converted onto this diet that I started feeling the same way, and dropped the weight. My running came back again, and and it was back to not quite to where I was in my 20s, but certainly to where I was in my 40s.
0: And what does that diet look like? Like, what's a typical sort of daily diet for you? Are you getting back to the way you used to eat, like with the offal and the uh, organ meats and things no, again? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So I have an incredibly simple diet. I just eat meat, fish, dairy, eggs nuts and an occasional vegetable but that's it and i have one meal one cooked meal a day and that's it and the rest i just might snack on cheese and and uh, built on which is jerky south african dried meat products right and that's it i mean it's, it's unbelievably simple
0: <laughs> and you're not it concerned really about getting meat. heart disease because that's what we hear right too much fat saturated fat is, oh, is going to fog your arteries and kill you
1: well, I was going that way, but you see, the error is it's diabetes that kills arteries. I mean, I look at my father; he lost both his legs, and the surgeon said, "I've never seen such bad arteries." And it wasn't the cholesterol; it was the type two diabetes. All the evidence is that type two diabetes is the cause of of uh, of arterial disease. It is the key killer; it kills it die, destroys all your arteries. Mm. So, the more fat you eat, the less diabetes you have. The less risk of heart disease. You know, it's one of those great myths that, that has, be, has, been, has been developed. And again, like when my university kicked me out, they said, oh, your diet's killing everyone. You know, it's causing heart disease. And so I said to the guys, because they wouldn't talk to me. So I said to the professor of cardiology and the dean of medicine, he's kicked me out. I said, so tell me, when did you last see a patient with heart disease? Oh, a few weeks ago. So did you ask them what they were eating no actually we didn't so i said do you think they were eating the burnting diet the high fat diet and this is a poor community in south africa that this hospital serves they, they are sugar saturated they're saturated ultra processed foods but you go, then, then one of the guys who taught me cardiology goes to the mayo clinic and becomes the professor he comes back to cape town and he hasn't been back to Cape Town. We work in the community, so we know what they're eating. They're eating sugar, sugar, and more sugar. And he says, the problem with Cape Town's heart disease is they're all eating too much saturated fat. These people can't afford saturated fat. They can only afford sugar. He oh. hasn't a clue. He brings his, this, this bias that he's got in America because it's statins and cholesterol lowering. Hasn't a clue about sugar being the real cause.
0: Yeah, so And that's the the sort of standard approach, isn't its is If you yeah. have diabetes or metabolic syndrome, it's a focus on the fat. It's a focus on reducing your cholesterol with statins and these kinds of things. And why do you think that that approach might actually be harmful to strip out cholesterol and to, to lower your saturated fat? Is it because we're not getting um, fat-soluble nutrients or is it because then our ratio of carbohydrate goes up Fat consumption goes down, and that imbalance between the intake of those macronutrients leads to higher insulin levels and and blood sugar levels.
1: So I agree everything you've said. I absolutely agree, but I don't think that's the driver. The driver is hunger. Hunger is the problem. Right. And hunger causes us to overeat, and then if you're insulin resistant, you've got to store the calories, so you store them in the visceral fat, and the visceral fat becomes inflamed, and then that causes the metabolic syndrome and. The hypertension and and all those conditions, including the, the arterial, arterial disease. Mm. So, the, the, what 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 I learned was that the first thing you have to do is you've got to get rid of hunger. You've got to find foods that take away your hunger, right. and those surprisingly are foods with high protein content. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things about the ultra processed foods are that they contain much less protein, and so you, and so you're not properly satiated there's some lovely studies showing that protein intake drives animals consumption of foods That once they'll only stop eating once they've been given enough protein Mm. So, so i'm not suggesting that's the whole story i could personally like to have a lot of fat as well that satiates me but once you get satiated then you find you're not eating all the time and you can you start losing weight and your desire to exercise increases but let's exactly what you said. When you eat a, a satiating diet, it's full of new macron, it's full of nutrients. It, it's a nutrient dense diet. So if the nutrient deficiency is driving it, you're sorting that problem out at the same time. So I, the reason I think that real foods are so valuable is that they are satiating and they are nutrient dense. And so your cells function better, your whole body functions better. And you're not perpetually eating as are as you would be if you're eating ultra-processed foods.
0: Because I've um read some papers where they suggest that obesity might be like a starvation disease, where people are nutrient deficient, and that nutrient deficiency is basically resulting in the tissue and the cells sending out signals which equate to a hunger signal. And then we consume the foods that we're addicted to, like the sugar. But the body never gets the nutrients that it needs. So then half an hour later, you're hungry yeah. again. But if we yeah. actually addressed the nutrient deficiency and gave those macronutrients like you just mentioned, the hunger signal goes away and we don't have that desire for over-consuming these sweet processed foods.
1: Well, you know, you're know, you quite right. And the, the test of that hypothesis might be to see what happens when we put people on real field diets and then exactly what you described happens. The problem is, are we, can we be absolutely certain it's the nutrients or is it the macronutrients? Hmm. It's very difficult to distinguish between the two. And so I quite agree with you that it may well be the nutrient deficiency that's causing a problem. But at the moment, the science seems to suggest it's much more likely to be protein deficiency and maybe too little fat in the diet. Hmm. And then, of course, there's all the stimulation from the, from the sugars as well so but but however i think the point that that we're making is it doesn't matter what the theory is the solution is always the same it's always eat real foods nutrient dense real foods and whatever they do they sort the problem out however they do it we're not sure you know one of the problems for us scientists is we have to have an explanation (laughs) when when, when when what, what moved me was I changed my diet, lost my hunger. And I said, well, there, that's it. I don't mind how it's doing it, but it's doing it. And that's all I care about. Mm. And that's what we need to tell patients. You know, I, I tell people the, the best test of my diet is you go for breakfast. And if you, you don't have any religious objections, eat bacon and eggs and sausages and for breakfast. And you fill up your plate and you eat till you can't eat anymore. And then you go to work and see when you get hungry and they suddenly see gosh I only got hungry at five o'clock at night I said well okay then doesn't that tell you something Hmm. yeah
0: yeah so that um approach that you're suggesting there is to eat real food shock horror like how controversial (laughs) we should tell people to (laughs) eat real whole food (laughs) Professor Noakes um Before we move on from this topic, is there anything else that you think is important that you'd like to mention that we haven't discussed?
1: Just to say, you know, people need to test themselves and work it out for themselves because you're not going to get the right information. So, and the beauty of the diet is that you will know within two weeks whether it's right for you. That's point one. But point two is if to get this, to get healthy, You have to get rid of the sugar addiction. That's the key. We found that. So David Unwin is a great friend of mine, David Unwin in in Britain, who's reversed 100 patients in his clinic from type 2 diabetes. Nothing more than advising them. And, you know, it's not he doesn't have all the time in the world to work with these patients, but he's reversed diabetes and he saved the patients an enormous amount of money. And he agrees with me. You've got to get rid of the sugar addiction. That's the first thing. So for me, obesity is a sugar addiction disease, but no one acknowledges it. You know, it's, it's, oh, you're doing this or that or the other, but in fact, and then you see what food they're eating, it's all sugar-based. Mm. And when you go to conferences with the diabetes associations and the dietetics associations, there's all the sugar being given to the people who are at the meeting, and no one addresses it and says, maybe it's the sugar that's the problem. Yeah. So, so those are the two points I'd like to make. Sugar addiction is the real problem.
0: Yeah. And I've always found it uh, very interesting because I've done some presentations over the years for uh, various associations and organizations on these topics like diabetes. And yeah, it's always been a big push for consume carbohydrates, low fat, mm. and then we'll manage everything else with the drugs. So we'll give the blood sugar and insulin controlling drugs and therefore it doesn't really matter what you eat, but they never seem to cotton onto the fact that you can actually reverse diabetes with with having this change in diet. So hopefully one day this will change, but it seems like (laughs) people like yourself and various others in the field of nutrition and medicine have been saying this for a long time and it just quite hasn't. Cottoned on yet?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and let's make the point that we're not the first to say it. I mean, it's been, it's in the literature since the 1800s that you mm-hmm. can, re- in fact, since the 1700s. And uh, one of the first guys, and I, I found his graphs, and there they were showing reversal of type two diabetes. He plots the glucose tolerance test, and you can see it normalizing. And uh, he he said interestingly that the worst thing that ever happened was the discovery of insulin Hmm. because he said we were on the verge of showing that you can regulate type 2 diabetes with a high fat diet but as soon as insulin came along no one cared anymore because it was an easy solution so because of course in those days they couldn't distinguish between type 1 and type 2 because they couldn't measure insulin Hmm. but so he was treating mainly type 2 diabetics adult people with with diabetes and he was showing that you could reverse their diabetes on a high fat diet but the others weren't interested. Well, we've got insulin now, so let's just inject these patients. And they assumed that everyone was the same. Type 1 and type 2 diabetics were the same. They all lacked insulin. So that seemed to be the solution. Mm. And, if, and it was not understood then that type 2 diabetes have high, high insulins, not low insulins. And adding more insulin, how's that going to help? Mm. So, so that we've known since then, at least then the 1940s, that this disease is completely reversible with a, with a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. When because, I say completely conventional, I mean you still can't eat carbs. It's not completely
0: yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, Professor, I noticed some time ago, I was a little bit surprised, actually, because there's a number of um, doctors that I've been following over the last couple of years, um, namely people like Dr. Sam and Mark Bailey, and I follow their work fairly closely and I noticed that they had headed up a thing called a virus challenge and basically what that's doing is and you may be able to clarify these points a little bit more but essentially it's asking uh, the field of virology or, or um, putting forward a framework for a set of experiments for um, the field of virology to prove uh, the science behind what they do and i noticed that you'd put your name to that and i was really surprised because i respect you (laughs) and um i thought yes great you're also um happy to to question these things um how did you first get or find out about this and what got you interested and and why did you decide to sign your name to the virus challenge
1: sure so I first met Sam Bailey through a, a colleague who interviewed me. Germ, is a lo- friend of mine in Cape oh, Town. Okay. You know, Germ, he does a podcast and he, he really stirs the pot in yeah. every which way. <laughs> and he's become very, very famous for, for what he does. Yeah. And he's a cartoonist. I think you know that too. Yeah. So, so I helped Germ with his diet. So he went on this diet and cured himself of some things. And then he felt we must promote the diet. So he said, I've, Interviewed Sam Bailey, and she really would like to contact you. So we got into contact, and I realized that she had been also cancelled, like I had, and she'd run into all sorts of problems with the New Zealand Medical Associations. And so I started watching her podcasts and reading her work. And then I realized that she's an incredibly good educator, Mm. firstly. And secondly, she's meticulous, she goes and looks at the science. And so I challenged her on a number of things and she would always come back and she would have an answer. And so I then I read her book, Virus Mania, the book that she wrote with, with some other groups. And I said to Sam, you know, this is a fantastic book, but it's too intellectual. You need to write a book that is at a level for the average person to understand. And I said, you can do that because you're one of the best educators I know. And I'm very excited to say that she's taken up the challenge with Mark, and they are writing a book on, on the whole virus story. So eventually, then I read more of what Mark had written, and and he said that virology is a pseudoscience. And I said, But but Mark, how can you say that? He said, Well, we'll read this article. And 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 now, what's interesting in South Africa, I've been challenged by vi- virologists. Oh, okay. they, yeah. They they targeted me and I wondered why that was. In relate, and what then I they realized... Uh, well, f- well, firstly, when I was under trouble, I noticed when I was in trouble with my university, I noticed it was the virologists who would, were stirring the pot of it. Oh, okay. Saying we shouldn't, you know, know is. Bringing the university down, the distribute, blah blah. So, but I couldn't understand what's it got to do with them? That virology is not their business. So, so I became interested, and then the South African response to the COVID, the COVID pandemic, so called, was driven by the virologists, hmm. and I I listened to them, and I said, but they don't listen to science. They, there's no. You know, when people come up with evidence that the lockdown doesn't work, they say no, no, of course it works. We know it works, and they wouldn't get, and they wouldn't listen to the evidence. So it was exactly like me being in my trial, trying to ask the dieticians, but where's the evidence that this diet's dangerous? No, we know the diet's dangerous. Ansel Keys said it in 1952. <laughs> so I spent I spent two days showing Ansel Keys had no clue about what he was talking about, he, and he was he he, he was wrong. Mm -hmm. So so it was exactly so so I started to think the Mm -hmm. virologists sound a little bit by like the dieticians and the cardiologists. They don't look at the facts. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, I I went and and read as much as I could about what Mark and Sam were doing and their books. And and I saw that they were correct. Mm -hmm. Science is a method, it's not a body of knowledge, as I, I think we've discussed and and what the virologist says, we know there is a virus present, and this is what it's causing. But when you ask them, so, so show us that this virus, and it can self-replicate, that's the key. Where's the evidence that this virus that you claim can self-replicate? And they don't have that evidence. <laughs> and, and you know, one of the interesting things is that, and, and Mark makes this point repeatedly, he said, the claim is that this virus self-replicates in the body and that it, cause, cause it produces millions of copies. But when you go to the body and you try to find those millions of copies, they can never isolate them. Hmm. They have to, whatever they take, they have to try to grow it on these unusual cells. Well, if the virus grows in the lung cells, surely you just have to plate it onto a couple of lung cells and it'll grow there nicely. Right? They don't, but that doesn't grow on lung cells. It only grows on kidney cells or something. sorry, supposedly grows. And then they've worked out a technique so that, sorry, so his point is that it's all hypothesis, which has never been tested. They don't test anything. They just say, well, we know the virus is present and this is what it's caused. So any outcome that they measure, they explain by being the virus being present, but they have never isolated and shown that the virus is actually present. So I'm not trying to, to cause trouble. I'm just saying, I'm a scientist, show us the science, prove that you are a science, that, that's all I want to know. Because if, there, if viruses don't exist, then, then the world needs to wake up very quickly because we've been captured by people who have the, the World Health Organization developed this disease out of nowhere. We suddenly had COVID-19 out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. They produced this disease. Now, if the disease doesn't really exist, then we have to understand what's the World Health Organization plan? What are they doing to us? And I think anyone who looks around will see that we're in a much worse shape today than we were three years ago, before the World Health Organization told us we had this pandemic. And, and people like ourselves who can think and question, we have to do that. So that's the reason. I, I don't believe that any virologist will take up the challenge. Hmm. Because because they can't, they they won't be able to answer the questions that Mark and Sam are questioning. And I just have. Let's hope they're wrong. Let's hope Sam and they're wrong, and they can prove the virus. That's great. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, you know, we can all go back to living our normal lives, can't we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But uh, but we must know
1: the truth. We must know have answers. And sorry, <laughs> the other reason why. One of the people who, who taught me and influenced me hugely was a biochemist, and uh, he really helped my career. And then all of a sudden, about six months ago, I got a letter from him saying, you're a person, you're a disgrace, you know, used to respect you, you wrote Law of Running, blah, blah, blah. But now you joined the conspiracy theorists, you see. Oh. So, so I wrote back, because there was a campaign against me in six months ago, I appeared on the front cover of the newspaper, hmm. conspiracy theorist Noakes says something. I forget what it was. <laughs> and uh, and he was responding to that. I said, listen, that's all nonsense. Go in. I've never said those things. They just I was just being targeted. Hmm. So anyway, then he wrote back to me and he said, Oh, you know, I did biochemistry, and he said, now I'm a virologist. <laughs> so, oh, really? So it kind of kind of made me also step up and and ask questions. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not saying that viruses don't exist. We're just saying show that they exist, that's all, and prove that the science is true.
0: That's all. And this would be Which true. Is... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: So because we've injected millions of people around the world on the basis of this hypothesis. Mm. And and we really need to know is the hypothesis correct
0: or is it not correct? And that that's all we're asking. And regardless of whether it's because you mentioned the word pseudoscience before. And basically the way that I see that is that there's claims that are made that there is scientific evidence when in fact the scientific method has never been fulfilled. And for virology, I certainly think that that's the case from what I can ascertain by reading the literature and listening to professionals like yourself and various other medical doctors. But this isn't just With the field of virology this is for any field of science we should be able to look at the merits upon which these theories and things are based and if the evidence is lacking we should be able to challenge it without being called a crazy conspiracy theorist (laughs) like you were caused uh, that you were called but that's quite concerning because when you're not able to challenge the science without being called names that in itself is anti-scientific. I think we're running on some, we're treading on some pretty dangerous ground here.
1: Yeah, so now I'm going to boast, you know, I love to boast about myself. So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so firstly, you know, I, I think people who are cited are important. Now, John Ioannidis is my great hero and he's the most cited scientist in the world. And he's targeted for saying that COVID was no worse than the flu. And he worked that out already in, March, April 2020, and of course, he got nailed by his Stanford colleagues, but he's a genius, and again, geniuses aren't recognized. But he also tackled the non-science of nutrition, and he said we need more studies disproving and proving that things don't work, because all the studies he reads show they prove, prove that they work, and then he looked at cancer and like if you took two eggs a day, you'd cause so much cancer, or if you took two barley leaves a week, you would never have cancer. And he said, How is that possible? And he found 50 different substances that have all been tested for cancer curing or preventing. And they went from the one study which show completely prevents it, the other one shows it causes it. Mm-hmm. So he said, you know, we need to disprove stuff. So that that's why I liked him. So anyway, a few months ago, they reported, they listed the top whatever thousand hundred thousand scientists and so i could compare myself to the people who said i'm no scientist and it was turns out i was way above all of them (laughs) and and i'm the second most cited scientist at my university medical scientist at my university so yeah they kicked me out for being a not a reputable scientist Mm. and these were people who haven't got a clue about what science means not a clue they've not they've not published work it's not been cited Yet they're the experts in trying to suppress those of us who are trying to do science. So I'm just going to show you, you know, I'm just working on metabolism. Now, I've been in metabolism since, since 1981. So I've got these are now the studies that I've just looked up more recently. Well, you know, and that's only that's only one of these files. There's another You've file. Got more. <laughs> Yeah, so there's two files like that. And then there's my notebook. Now, now I'm an authority on this. Then here's my notebook on all the studies that I think are critical. And I make notes on them. Here's notes. Rates of lipolysis does not limit oxidation rates at rest. I'm working at this in 24 hours, not, you know, seven days a week. I'm working at metabolism. And then I'm told, no, you haven't a clue about fat and carbohydrate metabolism, <laughs> you know, from people who've never even read the literature. And yeah. so it's just very frustrating that when you're in science, it's, it's a full-time occupation to, to do it properly.
0: Yeah, there's uh, these sort and, of, there's these statements like saying, follow the scientists and the experts say, but then experts yeah. like, and I would consider you definitely an, an expert um, in the field of at least exercise science and sports nutrition and and nutrition um experts like you come out and say something they say oh not that expert <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they listen to what that expert has to say he's just yeah, a crazy exactly guy right. yeah it's, it's yeah, no, very very exactly interesting wrong.
1: isn't it so we just said so, so again let's going back to sam and and mark you know they they may be wrong and that's that's their prerogative yeah. that's fantastic if they're wrong because that's what science is all about. Eventually, we, pro- we all prove to be wrong. But you know I've got this great claim in South Africa. I'm the one scientist in South Africa who said I was wrong. <laughs> no one else ever <laughs> cared, <laughs> dared say it, so no <laughs> so, so I'm famous for that. And, but we should all we, they're all making errors all the time, but they can't admit it, and that's, that's so frustrating.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and um, I think that we should be able to answer questions, and if we are wrong, then that's OK. There's nothing yeah, wrong with exactly. being wrong. And and to me, that's what science is all about as well, is to try yeah. and prove ourselves wrong rather than proving and, ourselves right. Yeah.
1: And you see, and if you go and look carefully at what Mark and Sam are doing, they're looking back at Pasteur and Koch, who were the two beginners of virology, and they're saying, listen, hold on. These guys didn't follow the scientific method. Mm. Now, I didn't know that. I was taught at medical school Koch was the Koch principles. They're they, absolutely the Bible, but apparently he didn't even follow his own principles. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that's true, but, but that's a possibility. And so the, and the, the one famous experiment is Pasteur, who's now developed his vaccine against anthrax. So, so now listen to this. But he's not quite sure if it works or not. You see, so he's now going to set up a, a, an experiment in front of the whole of France The whole of France are going to get to see this experiment. So he goes to this farm and they take a certain number of sheep, a randomized control trial. They take, let's say, 26 sheep and they inject them with the vaccine and they're all doing fine. And then he takes the and then he gives them the the anthrax bacillus and they all survive. But then he comes along to the control group and they all die. You see, they when he injects them with something. Related to the anthrax bacillus, they all die. Hmm. How do we know what he injected them with? How do we know that he really injected the other group with a real vaccine? Yes, we don't know. No, we don't. but then don't that know. that that's the basis for vaccinology Well yes. not quite, but that's that is such a powerful story. yes, but we we are absolutely trusting that Pasteur was not a cheat because he's the most famous biochemist in the world or. Or vaccine virologist in the world, but maybe he was a cheat. And that's what science is about. We have to prove he wasn't a cheat. Mm, exactly and then, yeah, and that's what that's all they're saying. Let's go back. I challenged them. I said, now listen, you explain to me the rinderpest because the rinderpest is a supposedly a virus, and it comes into Africa in eighteen ninety and it sweeps right across Africa and it kills all the cattle. And it lands up in Cape Town in my area in 1896, and um, it has to be a virus. It cannot not be a virus, according to my thinking. Mm. So I said, Sam, please explain to me the rinderpest. If there's no viruses, what's the what caused the rinderpest? Because the argument is that a lot of these illnesses are pollution or pesticides or something that are causing us to die, and particularly polio is considered to be DDT dependent Mm. and other. But DDT, I mean, is so closely linked to polio that it's difficult not to think that DDT was a key factor. Mm. But the Rinderpest, because it came from Egypt all the way to Cape Town, now what could possibly be common to all those countries that it came right through? Mm. So that's so that's a challenge for for Sam, <laughs> And so it's not as if I'm saying, Sam and Mark, you got it all right. I yep. want to know that that they can explain everything. yeah, yeah. and I think that's
0: important <laughs> that you're able to put forward situations or examples like that and say well how do we explain this and Yeah.
1: yeah
0: you know i i really appreciate that you're willing to look at that with an open mind because many of my colleagues um both um who i have a professional relationship with um at various educational institutes and also colleagues who work clinically in practice i've put this idea forward to them and said you should have a look at what these professionals are saying in relation to virology and either they refuse to look at it and say i'm crazy or they look at it and they can't see what i see or what you see um mm. immediately they sort yeah. of look at it and go oh no 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 it's it's all settled it's all it's all above board yeah. why mm. do you think that you were able to look at it and make sense of it and, and see the issues where so many people can't
1: yeah, you know that's a great question. and I've always had that ad, that attribute. If you look at my history, as soon as I see a paradox, then I want to answer, explain it. and that that's I'm fascinated by paradoxes. so so the two key things in my life, probably for which I will be remembered as the central governor, and it became apparent to me, I mean I, I've got this I had these data sitting in my drawer. And I pulled them out. And they were the lap times of Haile Gabri Selassie when he set the world record at 10 kilometers. And it turned out, so then you could see there was one kilometer one, kilometer two. This is speed. Kilometer one, kilometer two, kilometer three, kilometer four. And then kilometer 10 was the fastest. So I said, "But, but hold on. The reason he restarted that pace was because of lactic acid, which was poisoning his muscles. How can he suddenly speed up at the end? Paradox. Then I knew it's whatever was said was wrong. Mm. Then that was the one thing. So then I knew that there's something else is not lactic acid regulating performance. Then another lovely story, which has just come to light again because this great friend who, who, who I will tell you about just wrote his book and it's just been published. He's a guy who, Oscar Chalupski, who's an epic canoe paddler. By the way, he's, he's always raced the Australians in the Molokai Channel. Oh, yeah. And so in his book, it's always about him versus the Australians. And so anyway, <laughs> <laughs> because they were the, the top channels, paddle skiers are either South African or Australian. So anyway, he was competing as an 18-year-old and we happened to be studying this race. It was a four-day race off the coast of South Africa. And as an 18-year-old, the first day he got up before the race started and he said, Guys, you're competing for a second. I'm going to win this race. Now, he was competing against the best in South Africa, all of them who'd been doing this race for years and years. So, anyway, it turns out that's exactly what happened. But on the final day, we were measuring rectal temperatures and weight loss because we were at then the theory was if you became dehydrated, you're heat, you'd develop heat stroke. And on the last day it was a 50K paddle. And he came out, as they came out through the breakers, he lost his water bottles because the the wave broke on it, and so he didn't have any water. So he didn't drink for five hours. So when he came out, I said, gosh, Oscar, you lost five kilos. He said, yeah, this is the reason because I didn't have any water. So then I measured, well, I'm you know, I'm really scared because your rectal temperature is going to be 42 or 43. So we measured his temperature was dead normal, 37.5. And then I knew this idea that heat stroke and dehydration are related was rubbish and so that a lot of the work we subsequently did showed that so that was the second one and the third one was when a lady developed she became unconscious after the comrades marathon and she so she'd run 70 kilometers and then she was taken out of the race and she was given fluids and so on and she was unconscious for four days and her blood sodium level was very very low and that had never been described before. So I decided, well, I better find out what's happening here. And we very quickly realized it was because she'd overdrunk. And it, but it took us 10 years to prove it. And that then took me into conflict with, with the Gatorade community and the Gatorade scientists who were pushing fluids to, drunk, to, to be drunk to excess during exercise. And I wrote the book Waterlogged, which describes that 30-year uh, experience. But again, it was there was the paradox. People were saying, "Oh, you see, she collapsed because she dehydrated," and we proved that it was the opposite. She was overhydrated. Mm. So, so, so I think that the point is, I've had great success looking at these paradoxes. So I look for the paradoxes because I know that there's going to be an answer. But if you if you don't want to look for paradoxes and then you just say, oh, "Well, it's you know that's not can't be true," well then that's your personality and it's. It's not going to work
0: (laughs) well i think it's wonderful that you're willing to ask those questions someone like yourself who's so highly esteemed um i really value your position and your willingness to question the science um and to try and get to the truth of the matter so thank you very much for doing that um i understand that your time is incredibly precious and I just wanted to say thank you very much for taking the time to come and speak with me. Is there anything that you'd like to um, end with today? Anything that you wanted to, to say that you haven't had an opportunity to say? And if not, then we can, um, we can finalize today's or conclude today's session.
1: Well, thank you. It's been wonderful. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to be so radical in what I said. <laughs> but I, uh, but uh, you know, I'm really, I'm really, really excited rewriting uh, Law of Running. And I'm also glad to say that two heads are better than one. And one of my greatest friends is Karim Khan, an Australian who's now living in Canada. And I met him in Sydney in 1989. And he gave a lecture and he talked about free radicals in the bloodstream or whatever in the muscles. And then he said, You know, before I studied this, I thought a free radical was Nelson Mandela. You see, so this appealed to me immediately being a South African. So I I just liked him immediately, and so I invited him to come to South Africa to talk at our sports medicine conference. And we, I said, you know, what I really think you should do is he was working with the Australian Institute of Sport, looking after competitive basketball Olympic teams and so on. I said, that's all very well, but you'll never know how good you were and what your contribution was. Why don't you do academics? Why don't you become a PhD? And So which he did. He did his PhD, and he was so talented that he then became the editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and he raised the standard of the British Journal of Sports Medicine from being very ordinary to being the best in the world. It was astonishing how he did that over a 10-year period. And I suddenly realized that uh, that I needed him in my book because I want to focus on certain things and let him focus on the stuff that he's the expert on. So I'm very excited that the next edition of Law of Running, which is going to be Law of Running 5, is going to be an exceptional book. It's It's going to be a definitive work on running and the physiology and the medical aspects and the training aspects. So I'm working on that and I'm just loving it. So, 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 the, so the final message is wait uh, for a year and a half or two years. And then when the book comes out, I think you'll be really appreciative of what, of what we've done.
0: Wonderful. And yeah, I'll definitely keep my eyes open for that work. And just before we finish up today, What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Because you've got quite a few different um, things that you're associated with and a few different websites. So where's the best place for people to go and check out your work?
1: Well, I think the Noakes Foundation tells you pretty well what what we're doing. It does focus a bit more on health and nutrition rather than sport um, because that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. I'm only now getting back into sport. But that the Noakes Foundation uh, on the internet will give you a pretty
0: good outline of what, what I'm currently doing. Great. And I'll put um, links to the Noakes Foundation in the show notes. Professor Tim Noakes, thank you so much for coming and taking the time to speak with me. It's so wonderful and feel very humbled that I got to spend <laughs> a little bit of time with you. Um, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's so kind
1: of you, and and thank you for your heartfelt statements. So that's I really appreciate them. Thank you very much. It's been, a, it's been my privilege to be on your show, and best of everything to your audience, and hope that they've learned something from, from what we've
0: spoken about. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. The ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time.